Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. Today's episode is episode 11, and it's a bit of a change of pace from what you've heard previously. To date, I've been focusing almost exclusively on Islamist extremism for a couple of reasons. One is the fact that that is the particular brand of terrorism I am most familiar with and feel most qualified to talk about. And secondly, despite allegations to the contrary, the threat from Islamist extremism remains the number one terrorist threat worldwide in most countries and shows no signs of becoming any less dangerous in the years to come. So it makes eminent sense to me at least, and I'm sure to many of my listeners, that when you talk about terrorism in 2019, you have to devote an awful lot of your attention to Islamist extremism, groups like Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Boko Haram in Nigeria, etc., etc., etc. Today's episode, though, is going to be a bit of a change of pace, as I noted, and the first in a series of podcasts that deal with other types of terrorism that have little or anything to do with Islamist extremism. In all honesty, these next few podcasts are a bit of a promotion, if you will, for my forthcoming book, When Religion Kills, which is coming out this fall, late fall, to be published by Lynn Reiner in the United States. And it looks at a whole host of religiously based or religiously inspired forms of terrorism, including Islamist extremism, but goes well beyond that. Today's podcast will be devoted to the topic of Hindu extremism, which obviously refers to what's happening in the state of India. India, of course, has been in the news a lot. Lately, it just held a massive election. India is the largest democracy in the world by several orders of magnitude. There are over a billion Indians and Many of them voted in the most recent elections, which brought back to power Narendra Modi, who is the Indian uh, president, uh, for a second time. Mr. Modi's been around for quite some time at the state level, but has now become a very public figure on the international, international stage. However, given that this is a podcast on terrorism, you might ask, well, why am I raising the, the position of the Indian leader with respect to political violence? It turns out that Mr. Modi has, in fact, either stood on the sidelines or actively encouraged the phenomenon of Hindu extremism in India for quite some time now. India, of course, is a uh, majority Hindu country, um, uh, believing in the Hindu religion, although there are there is a significant Muslim Part of it. In fact, India is the second largest Muslim nation on earth, or third, depending on, on, on the numbers, after Indonesia and neck and neck with Pakistan, which always led me to, to note that the four largest Muslim nations on earth, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, none of them are actually Arab in nature, which surprises some people who always associate Islam with the Middle East and with Arab culture. Nevertheless, there is a very significant Muslim population in India, and part of and most of this stems from the fact that from the early 1500s until the late or mid 1800s, 
India was basically uh, run by an empire called the Mughal Empire, which was a Muslim empire that ruled a state of largely Hindu people for the better part of three and a half centuries. And of course, you know, the British came in, uh, created uh, or established India as a colony, the British Empire, and then it gained independence in the middle of the 20th century. So what does all this have to do with, with Hindu extremism? Well, unfortunately, there is there are far too many occasions in which actors in India who are in fact of the Hindu religion have carried out or supported or encouraged acts of violence largely against Muslims, although not, not exclusively against Muslims, for, for quite some time now. And I want to talk about this, this phenomenon of Hindu extremism, sort of some of this historical precedence that led to it, as well as where it is now and where I fear it is going. And how Mr. Modi is, is involved in all of this. One of the more interesting sets of uh, violent episodes took place back in 2002 in, in Gujarat. And this was a an attack on a train, although there is some doubt as to whether or not the train was actually attacked or it was actually inter-ethnic or communal violence. In any event, uh, a whole bunch of Muslims died. And in response to the attack, there were some Hindu activists who basically pointed the finger at Muslims and, and end up a lot of massacres of, of Muslims in India at the time. The thing about the Gujarat attacks, it's it was tied to a place called Ayodhya, which is a very important site for both Indian Muslims and for Indian Hindus. Ayodhya was originally a temple that was devoted to the Hindu god Rama. It was believed to be the birthplace of that particular god. And under the Mughal Empire, it was also the site of the Babri Mosque, which was a very important Muslim site. The mosque itself was destroyed in 1992, and since that time, successive Indian governments have been trying to allocate or assuage the various populations and divided the site into thirds, uh, two-thirds of which were to go to Hindu commemorations and one-third to uh, the site of the, the old Muslim temple. So why is this important? Well, actually, back in 2002, guess who was the state minister, if you will? It was uh, Narendra Modi, and he is widely believed to have, if not actually spurred on the violence of not having done enough to actually prevent them. The Ayodhya site has been essentially barren since 92, but even recently there have been mobs of, of Hindu activists, I'll use the term lightly, bordering on Hindu extremists who've been trying to rebuild the temple to the god Rama. And this, of course, is causing a lot of consternation within India and especially between Hindu and, and Muslim communities. So why does this matter in, in 2019? Well, as I noted, Mr. Modi has been re-elected as the president of, of India. And all throughout the election campaign, there was a lot of fear amongst Muslims in that country as to what would happen if in fact he was returned to power and he was returned to power with quite quite a majority so there are a few things that you have to bear in mind when it comes to the relationship between indian politics and hindu extremism in india one is the fact that the bjp or the bharatiya janata party which mr modi leads uh, is known to be a, a hindu nationalist party if i could use that term the other 
institution, if you will, that is uh, much more worrisome from my perspective is called the RSS, or the Rastriya Swayamsevak Sang. This is an organization that dates back to the British Raj when the British Empire controlled uh, India. And it was founded as a Hindu nationalist organization, the goal of which was to build a, a Hindu nation that is tied to very, very closely to religious discipline, i.e. Hindu religious discipline. Uh, it was banned uh, on several occasions, although the RSS Association with Violence is in fact a long one. Uh, a former member assassinated Mahatma Gandhi in 1948, and it has since that time developed a very close relationship with the BJP. It claims, the RSS claims to be a pan-Indy organization that's peaceful and is seeking the prosperity of all, but in fact it did have direct links to Mussolini in Italy and Hitler in Germany during the Second World War and prior to that, so that certainly should tell you something. The RSS seems to have a particular bent or obsession with targeting India's uh, Muslim community, and we'll talk about that in some detail in a bit. Although it has also attacked India's Christian community, and in fact, if you go back to the 1984 storming of the Golden Temple in Amritsar under Indira Gandhi, that of course was a was a Sikh temple. I talked about that in the previous podcast on Sikh extremism. The RSS was big behind that particular um, battle, if you will, between Indian Sikhs and Indian Muslims. But how is this Hindu extremism manifesting itself today? There are a couple of interesting phenomena that have gotten quite a lot of attention in the past couple of years. And one of them goes by the name of cow vigilantes. A very odd term. But this refers to the fact that, of course, in Hinduism, uh, the consumption of meat is not allowed. It is not part of their diet. And some Hindu extremists are, in fact, trying to carry on or um, expand that ban on eating meat to non-Hindus. Well, and who are the people that consume meat in India to a large extent? Indian Muslims. So what you've had happen on many, many occasions are allegations by Hindu extremists that Muslims have illegally slaughtered cows, whatever that means, or transported them to be slaughtered later. And there are many examples over the past couple of years where mobs have essentially besiege these poor people that are just doing their jobs as butchers or as transporters, drag them out of trucks or out of their shops, and beaten them to death. And there, I said there are many, many occasions in which this has happened. And on these occasions, the local law enforcement has been, in many ways, very happy just to, to turn a blind eye and to ignore what's happening and certainly not intervene to save the lives of these innocent people. Mr. Modi has on occasion called for people to you know, calm down. Uh, the consumption of meat is not illegal in India. But again, given his past, I think we have to really question how sincere those, those calls for, for calm are. The second interesting phenomenon that is also India, Indian in nature, is an attempt or many attempts to counter what's been termed love jihad. And this is a, I always found this to be a very fascinating term. Jihad, we can talk about for, for, for many days on what it really means in Arabic, what it means in Islam. But the term love jihad, it's also called Romeo jihad, believe it or not, is this belief that Muslim men are seeking to convert non-Muslims to Islam through love, be it real or feigned, or through marriage. 
And this goes back to a conspiracy theory that may in fact have its origin in the split between India and Pakistan in 1947, of course, under the, with the dissolution of the British Empire, and this belief by Hindus that somehow Muslims are stealing their women and forcibly converting them to Islam, making them have children, which of course would be Muslim as opposed to Hindu, and thereby somehow uh, getting at or undermining the, the birth of, of Hindus and, and therefore chipping away at the Hindu majority in India. This, of course, is absurd, given the vast majority of Indians are in fact Hindu, and the predominance of Hinduism in India is not under any threat anytime soon. So a bunch of Hindu extremists... Um, they call themselves love commandos that basically try to intervene when they find out there, that there are arranged marriages, which of course is, is in many ways the norm, in many places the norm in India, uh, and prevent them. Or they actually intervene in weddings to try to prevent the marriage of a Muslim and a Hindu. And on occasion, these have turned, in fact, very, very violent. People have been killed by Hindu extremists trying to prevent a Muslim man and a Hindu woman who fall in love uh, from getting married. And again, on many occasions, this is something that the authorities seem to want to ignore. They don't play an active role in trying to intervene. And as a result, people have died. There's also the Kashmir issue. This is one over, over the um, disputed area of Kashmir, which lies between India and Pakistan. It is largely controlled by India, although there's a, there's a part that's controlled by Pakistan. This is an unsettled area, and it's been unsettled since dissolution in 1947 with the creation of Pakistan as a largely Muslim state and India as a largely Hindu state. And the amount of violence that's been occurring in Kashmir has been going on for the better part of three quarters of a century. Uh, it's not showing any signs of letting up. It's it's only on a, almost on a weekly basis that I read news in Indian and Pakistani newspapers in which Journalists call call out, or call out martyrs on both sides. So if Indian soldiers die in the fight against Kashmiri separatists, they are martyrs. If the Kashmiri separatists die in battles with Indian commandos, Indian forces, they, they are martyrs as well. This is an area that um, is showing, uh, unfortunately, no signs of regulating or, or, or simmering down anytime soon. And surprise, surprise, the RSS, the organization we referred to before, is in fact challenging an article in the Indian Constitution which grants Kashmir special status and it's painting it as a Muslim assault on India and and by extension a Muslim assault on Hindus. Both sides have been guilty of atrocities. It's nothing new. Um, it's just religious fervor on, on either side reaching a boiling point and people using religious Doctrine, religious scriptures, religious tenets to justify violence against people who happen to believe in a different way. Another one that's come up recently in India that's linked to Hindu extremism is uh, a crisis in the Indian state of Assam. And this is a, a, a state in northeastern uh, India, which abuts Bangladesh. As I mentioned, Bangladesh is a largely Muslim country, the fourth largest Muslim country on earth. It was the site of violence when Bangladesh was created in the late 70s and 80s. Of course, Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan. There was a civil war when it became an independent country. And a lot of people in the area, including members of the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, have essentially tried to force those living in Assam state, whom they call latecomers, i.e. those who arrived after 1971, to leave 
and in part they are denying them citizenship, they are denying them any kind of nationality, and they just want the problem to go away. They want these people to go back to go back to Bangladesh, saying that they have they immigrated illegally into India in the early 1970s. And in fact, a one BJP member stated that those who do not, do not leave should be shot. Quote, if these Rohingyas and Bangladeshi illegal immigrants do not leave India respectfully, then they should be shot and eliminated. Only then will our country be safe. So this is an issue that is also seems to be not going away anytime soon. There's also a, a greater sense of Islamophobia amongst many Hindu extremists. There have been riots. There have been terrorist attacks carried out by Indian Hindu extremists, etc., etc., etc. If you read the Indian media on a daily or weekly basis, you find, in fact, that these things happen an awful lot. There's also some anti-Christian violence in India to a much lower extent. Although in 2018, a global Christian rights group called the Alliance Defending Freedom claimed in the first 10 months of, of that year, 2018, there were 219 incidents of targeted violence against Christians by Hindu groups, 192 of which were mob attacks in the form of threats and intimidation. And it turns out, according to this group, that women and children were the ones that have suffered the greatest with upwards of 300 women and children reporting to have been injured uh, by Hindu extremists. And these are Indian Christians. So Prime Minister Modi, of course, a very charismatic man. He is uh, seen as the man who has brought India in many ways into the 21st century, uh, varying degrees of economic advance, etc., etc. He has publicly called out Hindu extremists, he actually used, um, although he did lash out at the opposition when they used the word Hindu terror, seeming to try to backtrack and say, well, this isn't, this is terrorism, but it's not Hindu terror. An interesting term that I have come across also in the literature is the term saffron terror, referring to the robes that, that devout Hindus wear. So where does this leave where India is going to go? Is this in fact Hindu, i.e. religious extremism, or is this more nationalist or ethno-nationalist terrorism? Well, let me give you another quote. This comes from a head of the RSS in the southwestern India state of Maharashtra, who stated, I quote, Everyone in this world is born Hindu. They are turned into Muslims when they are circumcised, and they are Christians when they are baptized. And he made this statement in the aftermath of the, what, what, are, what he called the successful rescues of cows by devout Muslims who took them from, from or, sorry, by devout Hindus who were taking them from Muslims allegedly to be slaughtered. So I, I think in this regard, it's really hard to see that this is not a religious form of extremism, that it's, it is definitely tied to Hinduism. Is it tied to normative Hinduism? Not to the best of my knowledge. Is it a majority of Hindus that believe in this form of violence, that believe that killing Muslims over their love affairs or over the consumption of meat is licit, it's allowed? By no means. But it seems to me that this is very, very much a religious form of violence. In essence, Hindu extremists refuse to accept anything that strays from their narrow interpretation of Hinduism 
and they abide by a mantra that is Hindu Khatre Main Hai, which is Hindus are in danger. And this is a classic trope that a lot of groups use, saying that because we are in danger, because our people are suffering, and name the enemy, it doesn't matter who it is. In this case, it's Indian Muslims. In other cases, like in, in Myanmar, it's the Rohingya Muslims. I've heard of the Rohingya earlier in, the, in terms of the Assam situation. But this is a classic way of saying that we are besieged, we have identified the enemy, and we have an obligation to confront the enemy and, if necessary, to kill the enemy before he kills us. In that light, I can, I can draw no other conclusion than that Hindu extremism is real and that it is a yet another form of religious terrorism very much aligned with Islamist extremism and Jewish extremism and Sikh extremism, etc. In, in, in the podcast to follow this one, I'll be dealing with those other forms of religious extremism, not just to convince you that there are other forms of religious terrorism, but just because I find this an interesting phenomenon. And I think it's important that we re- remind ourselves that despite the fact that Islamist extremism is the number one threat facing us right now and has been for the past 40 to 50 years and is going to be the number one threat for the foreseeable future, that it is not the only manifestation of this particular brand of terrorism. We have a tendency to associate terrorism with Islam, and I think that's not helpful and dangerous. You know, Ann Coulter, for whom I have no respect as a commentator, once stated that, you know, not all terrorists are Muslim, but all Muslims are terrorists. And in many ways, the reason why I wrote the book, When Religion Kills, was to question that assumption on her part and found it to be wanting. In fact, it was completely uh, baseless. Terrorism is not limited to Muslims. There are many other people who happen to have very deep faiths in their particular religions who have authorized, demanded, or even uh, made mandatory the use of violence in the name of their gods. So that's it for podcast number 11. I do hope you enjoyed it. As usual, I would seek your feedback. You can reach me at borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can leave messages on my Facebook account. I'm also found on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Borealis Saves. I'll talk again in a fortnight. Until that time, stay safe.